Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. It's starting to feel a little bit like spring where I am, at least as I was writing this. It snowed today. Anyway, I love having seasons, particularly because I get bored of my wardrobe, and it's time to have something different to wear instead of all of the layers of winter clothing. So I've been enjoying rediscovering all the lovely things I can wear when it isn't quite so cold. Anyway, today we start a new epic, and a new poet too, one Publius Ovidius Naso, or simply put, Ovid. Ovid was born in 43 BCE to an equestrian family. So that would be the knightly class, equestrian horse, right? Knights. Well, they were well off. Not necessarily the highest class, but they were far from the lowest. They lived about a day's journey east of Rome, or maybe a 90-minute drive with modern transportation today. Because of his family's status, Ovid and his brother were well-educated. His parents thought he should become a lawyer or a politician, or both. Both is good. Ovid, however, opted for poetry, much to his parents' chagrin. And write poetry he did. He wrote a lot of short poems that we'll cover at some point in the future. And then there's what we're going to spend the next 15 episodes covering. His magnum opus, and what you might already know him for metamorphoses. But just as Ovid made his parents bristle with his choice of career, the very words that he wrote appear to have made Augustus bristle. Yes, Ovid pissed off the emperor enough to lead to a banishment. I mean, it also could be the circle of friends that he ran with, or maybe he had an affair with with Augustus's daughter Julia, or we don't really know. Whatever he did, whatever pissed Augustus off, Ovid was sent to a city on the Black Sea where he continued to write. And even though Ovid outlived Augustus and could feasibly have been allowed to return to Rome, that reprieve was never granted, and he died in Thomas there on the Black Sea around 17 CE. So that's Ovid in a nutshell. Metamorphoses, as I already said, is probably why you're familiar with his name. This epic poem sprawls through mythology with a focus, as you might guess from the title, on transformations. Ovid finished writing in 8 CE, which makes this epic contemporary with the Aeneid. It does not, however, have quite as much of a political impact as the Aeneid, so it stands alone without that larger understanding of the ancient Roman world that is useful to have when reading the Aeneid. I will be using the Rolf Humphreys translation from 1954. I believe it's still in print. If you are using this translation, do read his introduction. He sums up the delight that is Ovid's poetry in what I find to be an absolutely charming way. In short, he'd only planned to translate selections from Metamorphoses and then found himself translating the entire thing. This is a wonderfully accessible translation, but as with everything, I'm not too concerned with which version you might read because what we're looking for is what this says to us as humans today, not a word-by-word literary analysis. So with that, let's take a short break before seeing what's up with book one of Metamorphoses. Ovid opens with his theme. 
he's going to talk about bodies changing from one form to another. The gods, who are responsible for these changes, will help him tell this story. He hopes. And this epic is going to start at the very beginning, which we all know is a very good place to start. And it's going to end in the present, or at least in Ovid's present. And he starts. Creation. In the beginning, there was chaos. Not as we tend to think of it. The universe is formless, shapeless. There is no sun or moon or earth or sea. It's all one mass called chaos. And earth and sea and sky can't live peaceably in the same space, so something has to give. And something does. Some god makes it out of chaos and separates the warring factions, bringing order to chaos. Which god? Who knows? Avature doesn't. And man is born out of this new creation, too, which leads Ovid to the next stage in history, or perhaps I should say the next four stages, or rather, ages. First is the golden age, when things are perfect. There's no need for law. The god Saturn reigns supreme. We've seen him in Greek mythology under the name Kronos. There are no wars. There's not even the threat of war. There's no winter. At the same time, there's no agriculture, and we've seen in multiple sources that to our ancient writers, agriculture equals civilization, so maybe the Golden Age isn't quite as perfect as it seems. But then Jove drives Saturn away. Ovid skips the whole story of how. This is when the Olympian gods overthrow the Titans. And with the rise of the Olympians, we move into the Silver Age. Almost as good as gold, but not quite. We now have seasons. But we also now have agriculture. Men build houses. It's the dawn of civilization. But then, the Bronze Age. With the Bronze Age, people become more aggressive. They aren't exactly evil, but they aren't exactly not evil either. The Iron Age comes next, the fourth of our four ages. And that little bit evil we see in the Bronze Age comes to fruition. People are not nice to each other. There are wars. Land becomes property. The earth is torn apart for its precious minerals inside. In other words, mining is invented. And society falls apart. And this violence even extends to Olympus. The giants attack, stacking mountain on mountain to attack the gods. Jove tells the other gods that it's time they do something about the devastation the humans are bringing to the earth. He points out one Lycaon as a particularly horrid example of just how bad humans are. What has Lycaon done? Well, he decides to test the gods, or specifically Jove, in that time-honored fashion. Although I suppose it's not time-honored yet because he's the first to do it. Anyway, he serves up a feast of child stew. In Ovid's telling, uh, Lycaon kills a Molossian captive for the feast. Jove is furious. He sends a thunderbolt through the entire household and then turns Lycaon into, I'll say his name again, Lycaon. Can you guess? Think about his name. A wolf. Or perhaps a werewolf. Lycanthropy. Lycaon. And that's just one example. Jove thinks that's enough to show the Olympians why humankind should be destroyed. And clearly the best way to do that is, okay, any guesses? A flood, of course. With some help from Iris and Neptune, Jove makes the waters rise. It rains for a year, killing cattle and ruining crops. But one couple is spared. 
Deucalion, and Pyrrha. They manage to sail through the flood, and when the waters recede, they are alone. They build a shrine to Themis. Jove decides that these are good people, and he doesn't send any further flooding to kill them, too. Have you ever seen flood damage? Now picture that on a global scale. That's what Deucalion and Pyrrha are facing. Alone. But Themis hears them and tells them to throw their mother's bones behind them, to which Deucalion and Pyrrha reply, um, what? But then Deucalion says, okay, this might be crazy, but we're a couple of pious people, right? So our mother is the earth, right? And Mother Earth's bones are actually stones, right? So maybe that's what we should throw behind us. So they do, and these stones turn into people, and the sun comes back out, and everything dries out, and new creatures are born too, including one python. That would be the proper noun python, not just any old snake. But Apollo kills python and takes over Delphi and establishes the Pythian Games, at which the winners get a crown of oak. Not laurel. Apollo hasn't started wearing laurels yet. Which leads Ovid to his next story about why Apollo loves laurels. You see, there's this nymph named Daphne, and Apollo decides that he's in love with her. She does not reciprocate his feelings. He doesn't care, problematic much, but Ovid gives Apollo an excuse. You see, Cupid shoots Apollo with one of his love arrows, and he shoots Daphne with one of his hate arrows, because Cupid is an ass. So Daphne wishes to live as Diana does, single forever. Her father begs her to marry and give him grandchildren, but Daphne has no interest. And unlike Apollo, her father respects her wishes. Apollo chases after Daphne, and she is no match for him, and calls out to her father to protect her, which he does by turning her into a tree, a laurel tree. And you'd hope that would be the last word, but it's not. Apollo takes her leaves and uses them to make his new crown. And Ivid then moves to one last tale in this book. He sets the stage by speaking of one Inakus, who is crying because his daughter is lost and he fears the worst. Her name is Io. Jove decides he's in love with her, and she flees as he chases after her. And then the worst thing for Io, at least, happens. Juno finds out. And sure, she could blame Jove for this because it is his fault, as we all know. But of course, she blames Io. So Jove transforms Io into a cow, a beautiful white cow with the most beautiful eyes. And Juno says, for me? And what can Jove say except for yes? Juno entrusts her new pet, who you know she knows as Io, into the care of Argus, the man of the hundred eyes, only half of which are ever closed at the same time. And Inakus finds Argus and this cow, and Io draws her name in the dust, an I and an O. And Inakos knows that he's found his daughter, and he cries for her to be rescued. Jove sends Mercury to kill Argus, which he does. But first, he has to lull Argus to sleep, which he does with a bedtime story. He tells how Pan chases after the nymph Syrinx. She turns into reeds, so Pan uses those reeds to make a reed pipe. Pan pipes, right? Argus falls asleep, and Mercury beheads him. 
Juno takes all of Argus's hundred eyes and places on them on the tail feathers of her pet bird, the peacock. Jove swears he's done with Io, and Juno decides to trust him, and Io is turned back to a human. But the gods aren't done having affairs with humans. You see, there's this one woman, Clymene, and she has a son by, well, the son. The son's son is named Phaethon, and he decides to get his father to acknowledge him. But that, well, that's a story for book two. did say this epic sprawls. (laughs) I initially debated about breaking it into smaller episodes for each of the little stories that are in each book, which would make it significantly longer than 15 episodes. But once I started reading, I remembered that for the most part, each story follows from the previous one in a way that is so logical that it just makes sense to go through each book as a whole. In Humphrey's introduction, that's almost exactly what he says. He'd planned to just translate some favorite parts, but he couldn't find a way to do that without going through the entire thing. Ovid just wouldn't let him, and I I can appreciate that. So, book one. We get some cosmology. If you recall all of the Epicurean philosophy we learned when reading De Rerum Natura, this may sound familiar. At the same time, you might have felt like some of these stories are familiar from another religion that arose in a different part of the Mediterranean world. Uh, the Book of Genesis much, which we know also draws on other sources, uh, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. Someday I might cover Gilgamesh. It's delightful. Anyway, um, I'll leave that to the blog, though. We can discuss that there, all of that comparative mythology, because what I really want to talk about is women's bodies, particularly as we see them used in the stories of Daphne and Syrinx. Their transformations are intended to be a form of protection, but their new forms are then used by the very men who pursued them. Their autonomy is still violated even once they are no longer recognizable as women, which says a lot about how women's bodies were viewed in the ancient world and should make us pause to ask how much that might have changed in the past 2,000 years, or perhaps how little that has changed. We do see that Ovid is telling a warts and all story of the gods, and this is where modern translations are useful. Old translators lean toward euphemism. Modern translators are more likely to call a spade a spade and a rape a rape. So what might this say about Ovid's views on religion or about Greco-Roman religion in general? Do we see differences due to the fact that it is polytheistic and many people today um, in the Western world practice a monotheistic religion of one form or another. What are the differences that arrive in, arise in mythologies when you have more than one god versus having only one? Or I should say the vice versa. Once you have to transform your mythology to only have one god, what changes from the mythology that existed when there were multiple gods? So what stands out to you in the metamorphosis so far? Sorry, not the metamorphosis. It's plural. Metamorphoses. What story are you looking forward to hearing? Why do you think Ovid has chosen to focus on transformation? 
pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. You can find me on Patreon as Triumvirclio if you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we'll cover Book 3, Chapter 5 of the Bibliotheca. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.